We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice-cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pack-A-Day Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things green and gold. My name is Mike Lund, alongside me, Tyler Grizzagork, and joining us this week, Gage Bridgeford. And guys, as, as the offseason continues, we look like we're getting closer and closer to football being a likelihood in the fall. Uh, how, how are you guys doing, and are you ready for some football? I am ready for some football. I uh, have every day at work, people are like, so what are you doing since you're not writing as much? I was like, dude, I'm trying to come up with stuff to write about. So seeing news that sports just like between basketball and football or basketball likely to come back soon, football likely to be there, I'm super thrilled. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. And, you know, even for us trying to come up with a, po- a topic for this podcast, it's been it's been quite a quite a challenge. I think we've got a really fun one in mind for today. Absolutely. It is episode 668 as we continue with the Pack-A-Day podcast. And with the talk that Lambeau Field will be opening up at least on a small scale for some employees on Tuesday, it starts to think more and more that there is going to be football this fall, and I can't wait. And it makes it kind of got me thinking about the topic for this week. And, it's, and with the axiom of it's always better to let a guy go a year too early than a year too late. And with all the talk I've seen of Mike Daniels, uh, people wanting to bring him back this year, I've, I've wondered if is that theory the right theory to go by? Does it work? Is it effective? And looking at Packers history, it is kind of a mixed bag at times. There's some guys who went on to, to all pro or pro bowl seasons after leaving, but there's guys who 
who were let go at perfectly the right time, and and we've got a list of names, and and I guess before we jump into the names, Gage, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on this theory, and do you think it applies well? Um, so as we were talking before we got started here, I've always paid attention to New England because everyone wants to hate on them, but they have been done a better job of moving on from a guy a year too early than a year too late. Um, and they have some misses too, and Green Bay does. I am a big fan of moving on from a guy a year too early as long as it makes sense with what your team is currently building towards. If you're building towards trying to win a title right now, then you should – I think I would rather move on from a guy a year too late if you think he can help you win right now. If you're still in a rebuild and it's going to cost you more money to keep a guy and it doesn't make any sense, then just let him go. No, I think you're pretty much spot on. And, Tyler, uh, I got the same question for you. Like, What are your thoughts on, the, on this axiom and do you think it is appropriate to use? Yeah, I, I think a very underwhelming aspect of being a general manager is not only evaluating the new talent coming onto the roster, but evaluating the current ta- current talent that you have. And a lot of that falls on the coaching staff as well. And so it really is an important part of the job to identify when the do- when these doors on the roster are going to become open. Um, and if you need to open them earlier, then maybe the player is going to allow you to do so. You know these these guys being being shipped out or not not resigned or traded. I think it's just part of the evaluation process, and and the best general managers in history have done have done a good job at it. No, I agree with both you guys on that. I think the best GMs have done a very good job with it. And before we jump into the names that have gone in the past, there's one current player that we could kind of bring up and. Whether this is the year that it is the year the year too early, better than the year too late, and that's Tremont Williams. Uh, he's still out there right now, and 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 Gage will go to you first, I guess. What are your thoughts on Tremont Williams, and is this the year too early if he is not going to be in Green Bay this year? I don't think so. Um, I think that if you're going to move on from Tremont Williams, now's the time to do it. You're doing it for free, so you don't have to take any cap penalties from doing so like you if you release a guy when he's still got money left on his deal I think that there's enough younger corners there to kind of replace what he brings I think you have to see what you get in jo- what you have in Josh Jackson or Kadar Holloman is a, another guy that has been talked about is a possible filling guy he's not really going to play that slot corner role but I think you have to find what you have in these younger players and I think Tremont is he's just getting a little too up there he He's still got a lot of speed to him, but he doesn't quite have enough speed for what a lot of the receivers they're going up against are. So I'm okay with moving on from him. I just think it makes more sense to let him go, find somewhere else, or let him retire as he's as he might. And Tyler, I'll go the same question to you. Yeah, Tremont Williams is an incredibly interesting case because when they moved on from him originally a few years ago, I thought it was the right move. It was the right time to do so. And then he went around the league and he bounced around at Cleveland and uh, Arizona. And next thing you know, he's winding up back in Green Bay a couple of years ago. And I thought that was a great, I thought that was a great move at that time too, because it was obvious that maybe Green Bay moved on a little bit too early and he still had a couple of years left in him. Uh, and so he went to Arizona, had a good showing there, and then he was brought into Green Bay. In regards to him coming back, I, I would like to see him back simply because I think the value that he provides is not necessarily as an athlete on the field, but as a leader of these young secondary players that they have. I, 
numerous times these players have talked about how they look up to Tremont Williams, and, and I think Tremont Williams really embraces that role, and the defense needs leadership. Jair Alexander is still trying, is still figuring that out. Uh, Zadarius Smith took a huge step for this defense, and, and so did Preston Smith last year. And so they still need leaders on that defensive side of the ball, and uh, that's the sole reason why I'd like to see Tremont Williams come back. Obviously, if he comes back at this point, it's not you're not banking on him as a player for the future, but I, I do think that he's somebody that can really provide a lot of value for you at the cornerback position. Yeah, I agree. And so moving on to the list that we have made of guys who have left and whether it worked or it didn't work, you talk about the leadership aspect in the secondary, and that leads right into the first name that came to my mind now, which is Charles Woodson. And, of course, Woodson left Green Bay, goes back to the Raiders and has a couple very productive years before retiring and looking now at a Hall of Fame induction next year. With Woodson, it seems like it may have been a couple years too early because he really could have helped some of those later McCarthy teams maybe get over over that next level and get to that next spot and not have the collapses that we saw late in a couple of those seasons. And so, so Tyler, what are your thoughts on with Woodson leaving? And was that the case of maybe outsmarting and seeing an aging player and real and misjudging how much he still left in the tank? You no, know, I think that the way that Woodson and the Packers basically separated was I think it was the right time, and I think that it was handled appropriately. Uh, you know, he was a Hall of Fame player that was just getting up there in age, and he wanted another contract, and the team at the time was not in a place to give him that contract. Um, and so, honestly, it, it was the right move. It, it sucked because Charles Woodson, in the short time that he was in Green Bay, really did do a lot of great things. But it was it was time at the time, and um, that's honestly the common theme with a lot of these guys, which is why we're talking about them, but... Charles Woodson, I don't think he did much in Oakland again after, after he returned to Oakland, I should say. He didn't do much uh, to end his career. But again, he was a Hall of Fame player, so it sucked to see him go. But, you know, that, that's part of the job. You gotta make those tough decisions. And, and Gage, what are your thoughts on Woodson's? Um, I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna disagree here. Uh, and the main reason is not so much the production that Woodson brought to Oakland, although it wasn't the high level stuff that he was bringing in Green Bay. He was, I think he was still an upgrade over the safeties that they had in his spot when he left in MD Jennings. MD Jennings never brought anything positive to the table that I can recall. And Morgan Burnett was decent, but he was never a superstar. And I think that having a guy like Woodson next to him might have helped him develop more because he was a really young player when Woodson was there and when he took over anyway. So, and I, I th- and again, this goes back to what I said earlier. If you're competing for titles and you think you can compete, money shouldn't be an issue. It's well, something you see in the NBA. Teams are really willing to pay the cap and pay the tax if they think they can win a title. If In the NFL, it should be if you think you can win, pay the money. Because at the end of the day, if you get money but you don't win anything, that you saved a couple bucks. That's fair. And on the other side, we do have a defensive back who everyone can agree after seeing what he became, it's very likely they probably would have brought him back, and that's Casey Hayward over in Los Angeles with the Chargers. No one saw him becoming an all-pro corner, I don't think, when he left in free agency. But, but Gage will go right back to you. Um, what do you think was the thinking here with Casey Hayward? I don't know what the thinking was. I, I don't know if it was an injury issue. I don't know if it was an attitude problem. 
I thought they, and I've said this since they let him go, I thought it was a mistake. They needed a nickel corner. That's exactly the role he played on the team. He had ball production in his rookie season with set with six interceptions despite only starting seven games. I I didn't understand the point of letting him go. It, he played 16 games in three out of four seasons with Green Bay. I don't understand why you let a guy like that walk out the door, especially considering the fact that they were looking for a slot corner for the next for the next X amount of years since he left. They're still hypothetically looking for their like slot corner of the future, which in the modern NFL where teams are consistently running three wide receiver sets, you have to have a good third corner. They're still looking for a guy like that. Yes, you have Jair who can go inside and outside, but they don't have a guy like J.C. Jackson or Casey Hayward who just put him in the slot and he'll lock people down. I thought that was a mistake that they let him go. I thought he was going to be as good as he became. Did I think he was going to become a pro bowler and as good as he did? Maybe not, but I did think he was going to be a legitimate starter, full-time player for wherever he ended up. And, and Tyler, it's a similar bolt kind of with Micah Hyde as well, who became an all-pro player after he left. And with with these guys, compared to some of the other guys we're going to talk about who were later in their career, these guys are after their first contract. And when it comes to that type of thinking, is it worth sacrificing the future for maybe signing some of those aging players and bringing them back if it means you do let guys go like Hayward and Hyde? Well, I think specifically with those two, if if they stay in Green Bay after their rookie contracts, I think we're talking about a completely different looking secondary today because you're not – the Packers became a team that was pressing to look for secondary players. And honestly, both Micah Hyde and Casey Hayward were quite – perplexing in, in terms of why they didn't resign them. The money was not really that big of a deal. Um, and neither was, neither was the talent or the injuries. Michael, Micah Hyde was, was the do it all kind of guy for, for the secondary, for this defense. And it didn't make any sense to really let him walk other than they were a little bit more cap pressed at the time than they probably wanted to be. But at the same time, there was, there was enough money there to bring him back. And so when it really comes to developing these young guys now, I really do think that you, you look at the veterans in the secondary and there really isn't one now outside of Adrian Amos. Uh, I mean, maybe if you want to consider Jair Alexander one, but what if Micah Hyde is still in Green Bay and the way that this, the way that the secondary is configured is probably pretty good. And you have a, you have a veteran leader like we're talking about Tremont Williams, like, like Charles Woodson was during his time. I think that ultimately developing the young players, that's really a big part of it, is having a good mix of veteran and youth. And that's ultimately what I think they missed out on with both Hyde and Hayward. Yeah, I'm with both of you guys on that. It was such a surprising thing, especially the Micah Hyde one. Hayward, I knew because he had battled some inconsistency, a little bit of injury, but Hyde, I thought, was was a lock to come back. And as we know, see, both those guys have become very, very high-level players in Buffalo and Los Angeles. But possibly the biggest spot where the Packers have made these these roster calls has been in the linebacker spot, even going all the way back to the Bart Starr era. And so we have a couple players from the one player from the Starr era, one player from the early Ron Wolf era, and and one from the Ted Thompson era. So we'll kind of cover both all three of those. The first one, and this is in my personal opinion, the biggest mistake a GM has made besides trading for John Hadle, which we'll never talk about that again. And it's Bart Starr letting Ted Hendricks go. Back in back in the the mid seventies, Hendricks played one year in Green Bay, blocked seven kicks, had had five interceptions. He was an All Pro, a Pro Bowl player. 
on his way to the Hall of Fame, and they decided they weren't going to bring him back. He didn't fit that that kind of straight edge style, and so that he ended up going to Oakland, playing nine years there, winning four Super Bowls, all in general, also with the Colts, and becoming a Hall of Famer as the Mad Stork. And a guy like that who had one of the greatest defensive seasons in the Packers' history, which is quite the accomplishment. Him departing, I think, really kind of cemented the fact that the Packers are going to be a mediocre team for the 1970s. And on the other side, in the early 90s, kind of a shocking, kind of similar to the Mike, the Casey Hayward thing, was Bryce Pop. Pop was a solid linebacker for the Packers, but then he goes to Buffalo in free agency in 1995. And in his first year with the Bills, has 17 and a half sacks, which is the fourth highest total of the decade in the NFL. Was named the Defensive Player of the Year by the AP, and was listed as one of the top ten free agent move Pro Bowls. So, I know I know you guys didn't remember much about Bryce Pop from the '90s, but when you have a guy like that who leaves after his first contract and goes immediately to be Defensive Player of the Year, I think, and we'll start with Gage. You can kind of agree that that's probably the wrong move to make if you're a GM. So I'm looking just through his, like, I'm looking at Hendricks and Pop, who, yeah, we both talked, we talked about before the podcast started that we didn't have a ton of information on him, but I'm looking at Pop here. That's, that's his best year. As soon as he leaves, that is his best year. He has, he has good years after that, but you immediately regret the decision you made by letting the future defense player of the year walk out the door. Did you know he was going to be that? Not necessarily, but the guy put up no more after his rookie year we had zero sacks he had six and a half or more in four seasons he had an 11 sack season he generated some turnovers with a couple forced fumbles he had multiple interceptions as a like as a lineman effectively like yeah he's a linebacker but i don't know why you let a guy walk out walk out the door like that i think that's just goes back to the entire way they've done things forever that they don't value the linebacker position. Agreed. And, and Tyler, do you have thoughts on any of those, either of those two guys before we get to the more modern player? No, I just think that it, in all the frustration over the lack of attention to the linebacker position, as Gage mentioned, it is, it is, it's just, it's just that it's frustrating and it's, it's amazing when you start looking back, going back in, even into the seventies now, how much this franchise has not value the position and you know even in the early 2000s they they tried to address it with guys like AJ Hawk and and a couple other uh, legit draft picks and and I think there was even a free agent in there if I remember correctly I can't remember his name but the point is they they did try and address it but overall this team is still looking for a linebacker and it's been what 30 years so Nick Barnett is a guy who we, we're going to talk about here he's a guy who was there for a long period of time and he really was one of the anchors of the defense. Um, and they've really kind of struggled to replace him. Uh, and even when he was there, he was an above average player, but that, that was really his ceiling at that point too, which is ultimately probably why they moved on. No, you know, I agree with you. And I do remember the signing of Brandon Chiller. I thought maybe this guy could be a starter. He ended up being a, a good depth guy, good special teams guy, but never made the impact quite was expected of his contract. But you brought up Nick Barnett and that was the name you're going to get to. First round pick was a good player for the Packers. Is probably the best linebacker they've had since 2000, at least in the middle. And a guy who had speed, he could tackle, but he wasn't the splashy player. And he did battle injuries late in his Packers tenure. But after le- after he left, he played in 32 straight games for Buffalo, played 14 for Washington, 
and and Gage, the one who found a lot of these stats for Barnett, when after he left, it looked like he may have still had some left in the tank, and it makes you wonder after that Super Bowl season if they had kept him, if that defense would have been better in 2011 and 2012. Um, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. You don't want like if you don't want to pay the money and you're not contending, fine. But Green Bay was just coming off a Super Bowl. I understand that Barnett didn't play in the Super Bowl because he was injured after week four, but you play, you pay the guys, you run it back. You always try and win a title because at the end of the year, at the end of the day, it's all about winning a title. They've been searching for a middle linebacker since then. I understand they had Blake Martinez for a few years, but they were quick to let him walk out the door because they didn't want to pay for him because they don't value the position. They had a dearth of talent for the four years after Barnett left and Martinez got there because they didn't value it at all. They were playing Clay Matthews there just trying to get some production at the spot. And even that wasn't a super great idea. It worked for like two weeks and then everyone kind of figured it out. But so I just, I didn't understand letting him walk then. I kind of thought Desmond Bishop might be a thing also, but he couldn't stay healthy. And AJ Hawk was fan favorite good player but he wasn't a great player and I thought Nick Barnett when he was on was a legitimately like he was an above average player he's one of the better linebackers in the NFL in my personal opinion I'm with you on that uh, Tyler what are your thoughts on Nick Barnett and it how does it feel with with him leaving compared to the team still trying to find a linebacker to replace him well, I think also when they moved on from Barnett, he was either 29 or 30 years old. He was getting up there in age, and you don't want to give a guy a big contract at that point. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact numbers of the contract that Buffalo gave him, but I can't imagine it was a ton of money, but it was probably more than the Packers were willing to pay considering the injury history. Um, you know, the Packers didn't really value – the defense was good that year, but the defense was opportunistic in that, in that season. The offense is really what carried that team. Through, through the season with Aaron Rodgers and the, the trio of wide receivers. But at the same time, the, the linebacker position has just been undervalued for the longest time. And they really did try to address it with AJ Hawk, who ultimately did not end up being probably what they thought he could become. He ended up being a pretty good player. I think he was an average to above average player at best, but he ended up being a good player, a solid player in the middle of your defense. But they've, but they've been looking for a difference maker at the position. For a long time, and maybe they don't want a difference maker there. Maybe Mike Patton and Brian Gutekunst are going to change that, and maybe Christian Kirksey is their way of trying to say we do need to add some talent there this year. But again, they had opportunities to draft linebackers this year. There was a couple of good ones in Kenneth Murray and Patrick Queen, and they decided to not make a move for either one of them. Now, they probably went a little bit higher than the Packers wanted to go in the first round because it sounded like they had their eyes on specific players this year. But again, it's just... I, you shouldn't draft for need, but you should definitely at some point address the position in some way. And a, a Band-Aid like a Christian Kirksey is not going to fit that bill. Um, a quick interjection. Uh, Nick Barnett's contract when he signed with the Bills was three years, $11.5 million with $6 million guaranteed. So that is an average of less than $4 million for those of you doing math at home. It's probably a big contract at the time, though, for a linebacker. I'm trying to think now because the – the top linebackers just just started making over ten million. Well, he had just gotten done his second deal with Green Bay. It was six years, thirty four million, which is just under six million dollars. Okay. So. Yeah, so it was around market value for a player of his age who was going on a third contract and had battled injuries the past the past couple years before. 
So it was kind of a prove-it deal for Barnett. But but on the other side, we talk about the Packers making moves and letting guys go a year too early. I remember around that time they brought in a guy who the Bears let go of a year too early, and that's Julius Peppers. And so kind of going the opposite way of how we've been talking for the past few minutes, they brought in Peppers thinking he had stuff left in the tank, and granted he is a genetic freak and played forever, but it kind of shows that this is an inexact science, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's not a science. There's a reason that there's not a 100% hit rate, and if it was easy, everyone in the NFL would do it. There's calculated risks you have to take at times, and Peppers is one that paid off, and there's plenty of other ones that they've made that didn't pay off. Fair enough. And then another top name that I thought right before we started recording was, was on the defensive line is Cullen Jenkins. Jenkins left after the Super Bowl championship, goes to Philadelphia, has a solid rest of his career, kind of bounces around a little bit, mostly through the NFC East. But he was a guy where, if he's still in Green Bay, again, is the 2011 team have a better chance to repeat if they have a little bit more consistency on that defense? If you have a Jenkins or a Barnett on that team, does that change the outlook of the 2011 season? And Tyler, I'll go to you first. I don't think it does because I don't think one player makes a roster or two player makes a roster. However, we don't know, you know, and that's simply, that's, that's part of the fun of this exercise is we can sit here and speculate. Oh, uh, if they keep this player at this time, maybe they do win one that year. Maybe they, maybe they, that's the missing piece, the X factor that they need. But at the same time, these, these GMs at the time, Ted Thompson, they're making these decisions, decisions based off of and it's incredibly hard to do this, but in, based off of the future prospects of the team and the current prospects of the team, you really have to kind of figure out a good way to balance it. It's You see it this year with Brian Gutekunst taking Jordan Love in the first uh, first, la- first round of the NFL draft. There's It's a very fine line between competing and and playing for the future, competing for this year and playing for the future, and the best GMs are fi- find a way to balance, balance that line perfectly. Bill Belichick's a perfect example, obviously. Bill Belichick is a guy who... It's hard to compare to because he's just a freak of nature in terms of when it comes to being a GM and a coach and, and understanding his players and his scheme and who fits where and how he can fit guys in into the puzzle. But the best GMs find ways to manage both sides of the equation and do it at all times. I'm not going to say that Colin Jenkins would have guaranteed them a championship in 2011. But he definitely would have been up an upgrade over Howard Green, who played just five games and did next to nothing of note, and would have made them a lot more, uh, I think, formidable against running heavy teams such as the San Francisco 49ers, who were really good at that time. If I remember correctly, that is who knocked him out, right? Um, so I don't. Giants that year. Oh, that was the that was the one of the Giants years. Fifteen and one. Okay. Okay, so I don't think that Colin Jenkins guarantees them a title, no, but I think that he would have been an upgrade over a guy like Howard Green who had played five, who only played five games that year, started five games that year, didn't necessarily do anything of note. And I just think he would have been a better player than who else they got to replace him. And, that, and that's fair, and, that, and that's why we were kind of having these discussions because it is a fascinating thing to look into and and try and figure out whether these were the right calls. Granted, we have the benefit of hindsight, but it's always just kind of interesting to kind of think about some of these guys and 
what would have happened if they had stayed in Green Bay. But And we spend so much time talking about the defense. The offense is not immune to this as well. There's a couple names that we can bring up here, especially in relative recent history. The first one being Josh Sitton, who was cut on the eve of the season starting. And and after a horrible preseason, Lane Taylor gets thrown into the starting job and succeeds pretty well. But losing a Pro Bowl like Sitton, who does go to the Pro Bowl that season with Chicago, but he is out of the league in a couple years after that. And Tyler, will go to you first, I guess. Is Sitton kind of the prime example of the year too early, better than a year too late scenario? It is, but the interesting part about Sitton, obviously, is that it was, we'll call it in season. And while I think they're an important part of the, an important part of this entire equation to consider is how these guys are fitting in the locker room. And if your locker room dynamic is shifting, you know, is it, is that part of your decision to move on from a guy sooner rather than later? And I think that's honestly what happened with Sitton, um, in terms of what that meant to that team. Lane Taylor, I think, filled the role pretty well. The thing is with offensive line, as long as you don't go from a above average or elite to below average performance on offensive line, you can kind of mitigate losses sometimes. Maybe not the tackle position as much, but a guard, as long as your guy is not being absolutely terrible, you can mitigate some of those losses. And so I think a move to move on from sitting like that, um, because he wasn't fitting into what the team was anymore from a mentality standpoint, I think that that's, that's just an important part of it that probably goes unnoticed. Um, and it was probably right. It was probably the right move at the time. And Gage, I agree. I agree that it was probably the right move at the time. Um, Lane Taylor filled in well. Now, granted, you could also go with Lane Taylor's only lone good year, lone above average year was that year, and he was consistently down, on a downward trend after that. Yes, you can't. Josh Sitton probably would have been the same way because he was older and he started to, that back issue started to cause him more and more problems but I think that he like he meant a lot to that team he, I think he was friends with like that whole offensive line was probably the best that we've seen in I can't remember a better time in my life other than like that early 2000s offensive line going from left to right like Chad Clifton Mark Tauscher etc I think that Sitton made a lot of sense, but I know that the story after he left was that he was kind of a, a headache in the locker room, or like he was really strong, strong voiced and really outspoken, and McCarthy wasn't a huge fan of that was the story that we all heard. For sure, and then beyond a headache, well, we heard of what might have been a headache in the locker room, we now go to a guy who was a headache after leaving Green Bay, and that is Greg Jennings at the receiver spot. Uh, he leaves, goes to Minnesota, then ends up in Miami, but he never really produced after leaving Green Bay, and he never really matched or even came close to the heights that he had during his time in Green Bay. And for a guy who wasn't that old when he left, what what sense do you make of the move looking back on it now, Gage? I think that that was a perfect example of a receiver who was in his prime in a perfect system. I'm not calling him a system quarter, a system receiver, but I think he was in the perfect system for him. Rodgers didn't necessarily force feed him like a guy like Michael Thomas or Julio Jones or Antonio Brown who just gets a ton of targets, but he got a good amount of targets. He knew how to work well with them. The system still worked really well to create space for him to operate. 
and he was able to create production as a result of that. So I think that moving on from Jennings made a lot of sense. Um, obviously, he has not been super – has not had glowing reviews of Rodgers since he left, but you either love him or you hate him. That's pretty well known at this point. I was – at the time, I was kind of wishing that they had kept Jennings, but I think that they were so good at developing receivers, especially in that time, that it was okay. Obviously, you get to that year where they were starting mostly backup receivers and James Jones had to come back and have hoodie games every week, but – you win some, you lose some. For sure, and, and Tyler, I guess we, 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 after Jennings left, obviously that was the we saw more emergence of Jordy Nelson. We saw Devontae Adams start to come into his own a little bit after Jennings had left. Uh, guys like Randall Cobb as well. I guess what is your view on the the Jennings and him departing and the Packers being able to mitigate losing what was at the time probably a top fifteen receiver. He was surplus to the offense, and and that's hard. It's it sucks to say, but you know you mentioned it yourself. The Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, and up and coming Devontae Adams, who they believed in from the get go. He struggled. He struggled out of the gates, but they believed in him, and they believed that he could produce right away. And so they had these guys that were ready to come in and and take over that role. And Jordy Nelson ultimately did take over the deep threat role that Greg Jennings provided. And and Randall Cobb, you know, had his role as the slot guy, the guy to control the middle of the field, and Devontae Adams was trying to come in and do his own. It, he was surplus to the offense at the time. It made a lot of sense. It's it's why drafting so well is so important so you can churn these guys out and not have to financially commit to every single player who is above average on your team. And so because they had drafted Devontae Adams, who they thought was good, it made a lot of sense at the time. And it still makes sense today, obviously, because he did not go anywhere and he did not produce. And all he's done, he's been more of a headache, as you said, since he left than he was when he was on the team. And that's kind of hard to do. So props to Greg Jennings for that. But he ultimately was just not that successful uh, after he left Green Bay. And that ultimately proves the, the Packers right. And as, as a point of thing, I think I, I may have spoke wrong. Uh, I don't think Devontae Adams was with and the te- any of the teams with Greg Jennings, but there was Nelson and Cobb and Jones and Ruvel Martin and some of these other uh, other younger receivers, Jeff Janis, and so maybe guys like that were around. But I, I think it was just before Adams. But either way, yeah, I, th- you agree with you, I agree with both you guys that the, the development of these younger receivers made Jennings a little more expendable and and seeing how some of these guys had better years than Jennings ever did after he left, I think kind of proves that the the team ended up making the right call. But as we continue with, with the clock running, our last position, we go to the special teams. And this is a position where you, you don't realize how important it is until you need a good one, and that's that punter. And I remember at the time, I was in high school, and I, I was baffled by the cut cutting of John Ryan for Derek Frost and... I couldn't believe that the call had been made, that the move had been made, and Ryan went off to have a very good career with Seattle, ended up winning a Super Bowl over there. And the Packers are really essentially still looking for a punter who is at that level. Uh, Massa had moments, J.K. Scott's had moments, but John Ryan was a very good punter for the Packers, and that move was baffling when at the time, and it looks even worse in hindsight. And so Gage will go to you. What's what makes sense of cutting a very good punter? It doesn't. Um, punters can change the game in ways that you don't think about. They don't show up in the box score. 
They don't. They don't do any. The only time they show up on a highlight reel is if they get one down inside the one yard line, or if they throw a trick play touchdown. The a punter can make such a huge difference in the game, and they also they don't command a lot of money. So for a team that is constantly pushed up against the salary cap because they have a lot of expensive players, like Green Bay has been consistently since Rodgers got re-signed, and they're constantly having to manage the cap. They can keep a good punter. Ryan was the starter for the next ten years in Seattle. Like you said, he won the he won a Super Bowl. He went to another one. He he was a successful player there. He was a successful player in Green Bay. I don't understand what the big issue was. Why I don't know what the problem was for. Like, why would you get rid of a guy that's good, especially when one that is as good as Ryan was? He was able to do. Exactly what you need him to do with your high-powered offense. Whenever you sputtered, he'd give you plenty of room to work on defense. It still makes it baffles me to this day. Yeah, I'm with you. And uh, Tyler, what are your thoughts on the John Ryan move when it happened, and how the Packers are still looking for a consistent punter to this day? The fact that they're still looking for a consistent punter to this day is the really the telling part of all this. Um, in terms of Ryan's performance while he was in Green Bay, I'm not sure if he was more than average. Um, you know, and maybe that was the reason why ultimately they didn't want to commit to him. They felt like they could find somebody and who could, who could do the same job as Ryan and not have to pay that person as well. Um, he ultimately was just an average punter throughout his career. I don't know if he was ever spectacular and, I think I think it's just a team philosophy thing. It's a general manager thing at that point. Do you want to pay an average punter if you don't, like, or do you want to get a guy for literally a quarter of the cost? I think that's ultimately what it boils down to. So, it, hopefully, J.K. Scott still kind of turns out, but it's looking like he might be replaced at some point as well. But I want to make one quick argument in favor of John Ryan over Derek Frost. So the argument, so Frost is who was brought in to replace him. John Ryan in two seasons with Green Bay averaged 44.5 and 44.4 yards. You're right. Those are not world-beating numbers. They're not the greatest numbers ever. In four years as a punter prior to getting to Green Bay, Frost never averaged more than 42.9 yards, and in his lone season in Green Bay, he averaged 42.1 yards. So John Ryan was consistently two yards average on average better than Frost ever was before even getting there. Well, the stat I'd want to see, the stat I'd want to see to to really kind of put the nail in the coffin there would be the punts inside the twenty. I don't know if you have that information in front of you, but I think that's the I probably that's that's probably the most important part of punting. I, I if you can give me a guy who can kick sixty yards, it's great. But if the ball bounces in the end zone, then it's all moot. I'm, I'm working. On yeah. So I mean, anyway, anyway, moving on. I I don't know if the punter position is important enough to pay. Um, like it is for the kicker position, you find yourself a, a kicker who can stay composed, and especially a guy with the, the leg and the accuracy that Crosby has, you pay them. I don't know if you pay a punter uh, $4 million, $3 million, whatever it is a year, when you can get a guy like a J.K. Scott who can come in and probably be serviceable. Fair enough, but I think you pay for a, a punter who has biceps like Ed Hockley. But, but either way, in hindsight... It, all these moves in hindsight, we have different opinions on them, different things. But the question is always, does the strategy of letting a guy go before you think you need to 
more effective than keeping him along maybe one year too late. And Tyler, as you wrap things up, what is your view on that? I think overall it's an effective theory. We could sit here and 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 pick pick and choose the guys that we want to put as examples for this, but overall I think it's an effective team building theory. Um, I just to kind of bring this into the perspective of fantasy football, trying to get as much value for those guys as you can before you can't get those values anymore. That's ultimately what a good general manager is going to do. Um, in the form of letting the guy go and developing a younger player behind him or letting him go sign a big contract and getting a comp pick for him. You know, there, there are different ways to, to really maximize the value. And I, I think overall I'm a fan of the theory. Um, I'm not sure if I have enough data here to extrapolate a full conclusion, but at the same time, I, at first glance, I, I, I think I'm for the theory of moving on a little, just a little bit early. Um, quick thing, quick thing before I give my final thoughts. Uh, in 2008, so I went, so in 2007, John Ryan had 18 of his 60 punts were inside the 20. In 2008, which is obviously Frost loan season, he had 8 of his 48 punts. So that's a point three versus 8 divided by 48 is point one six. So he was basically twice as good. Yeah. So that's fair, and I don't know what they were looking at when they brought in Frost over Ryan. I think the idea was, we'll move on from Ryan, we don't want to pay him. However, they felt like they needed to do that, and ultimately they chose poorly a, a replacement, or maybe they misjudged the market, and then they ended up with a guy like Frost. But Okay, yeah, I just I happen to sit there and find the numbers in football database for any of you punding fanatics out there. Um, but no, so my final thoughts, like Tyler said, in terms of football for those that don't know i write about fantasy football you're always trying to maximize the value you have that's why people are trying to sell off guys like julio jones and michael Tom. i've seen people selling michael thomas right now because you can get a lot of value for him but in foot in real life football gms are constantly trying to maximize their window you're constantly trying to make sure that you're not left with egg on your face at the end of the year because you moved on like could jordy nelson have been an upgrade over jimmy graham it's possible considering they basically played the same role, but you also run the risk of Jordy looking old because he already had lost a step. You run the risk of him looking old. So I understand why GMs make a lot of the moves they make. There's a reason that they are paid to do this. Some are a lot better than others at it. Green Bay has had a run of good GMs for a long time. They could have moved on from Ted Thompson a couple of years earlier, and I think that the football, the team that we have now could have been a lot different. Like I think the the last few years of Ted Thompson could have gone a lot better if he obviously isn't there. I understand it would not be the years of Ted Thompson, but I'm saying if you bring in Goot two years before he's brought in, this team could have been a lot different. Um, I think that there's some questionable moves that Green Bay has made. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, but there's probably logic for the reason that those moves are made and that we'll never be privy to, and that's just the life that we live. Fair enough. You guys both make good points, and I agree with both you guys and the points that you've made. So as you wrap things up, uh, Gage Bridgeford, where can people find you, and what are you working on? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at GBridgefordNFL. Uh, I mostly write about fantasy football right now just because it's the offseason. I'm uh, looking into some other things, but right now i got a couple – fantasy football pieces coming out between tomorrow and Monday. I think I should have two or three pieces up. Just depends on how productive I am in the next 24 hours. 
And Tyler, same thing for you. Uh, as always, you can find uh, my content, which is pretty lacking at the moment, but most of it's on DynastyNerds.com, and at the same time, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, usually interacting, um, but taking some of that off time, using the quarantine to try and do some other things other than football and sports. Uh, so that's at Twitter, or on Twitter, at Tyler underscore Grez, T-Y-L-E-R underscore G-R-E-Z. Um, hopefully, I'll be getting back into the content soon. For sure, and you can find me on Twitter at Mike Wenland. Uh, find some of my work on Dairyland Express as I work on that. And, of course, find us uh, at Packaday Podcast on Twitter as well and wherever podcasts are found, I, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. We will be there as well. And, and stay tuned and listen every day for more new Packaday podca- podcast uh, content. Give us a like, give us a subscription, give us a comment, let us know how we're doing as well. So for Gage Richford and Tyler Grizzacourt, this is Mike Wendland saying so long for now. Thank you for listening, everybody. And of course, and as always, go Pack Go! Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.